I want to tell you something, and that is operating a food company has been one of the most challenging endeavors of my life. From innovating products that we want to land at the intersection of taste and nutrition, to wrestling with supply chain issues and managing inventory, I have had more sleepless nights in the past three years than I have in the last 30, including the 12 when I was a firefighter. But no one tells you that food is hard. But I also want to say it's because of each of you that we continue to get in the trenches day after day after day. It's in our core values to keep at it, knowing that we are filling a giant void in the market with products that you can't find anywhere else. And this makes it easier for us to climb out of bed each day. I want to thank you for your patience. We are anxiously awaiting the return of our organic pancake and waffle mixes. And we're excited to announce that our Plant Strong milks will be available online later this week, followed soon thereafter by the return of our exciting new burger mixes. Our goal is to be your reliable and trustworthy partner for all things Plant Strong, allowing you to stock up on healthy meals that you can make and enjoy in minutes while still managing your busy lives. I appreciate each and every one of you and want you to know that the effort will be worth it once more brands start to care about the integrity of the nutrition that they're putting into their products. Thank you so much for your support and please stay tuned for exciting updates at planstrong.com. Maybe you can do this little exercise that might be able to help you get some direction. And she said, why don't you go home and write down all the times in your life that you felt the most alive, that you felt the best about yourself. Oh, nice. And she goes, just write, write all of it, big stuff, small stuff, whatever. And then just see what comes up. And I wrote it all down. And what came up was a very clear um, trend or pattern. And from that pattern came this mantra that I still use in my life. It's like a founding foundational block for me. And it is that when your body is fit and strong, your mind is fitter and stronger too. I'm Rip Esselstyn, and welcome to the Plan Strong Podcast. The mission at Plan Strong is to further the advancement of all things within the plant-based movement. We advocate for the scientifically proven benefits of plant-based living and envision a world that universally understands, promotes, and prescribes plants as a solution to empowering your health, enhancing your performance, restoring the environment, and becoming better guardians to the animals we share this planet with. We welcome you wherever you are on your Plant Strong journey, and I hope that you enjoy the show. All right, my Plant Strong peppercorns, my name is Rip Esselstyn, and I want to welcome you back to another episode of the Plant Strong podcast and give a special shout out to all of the new listeners who have joined us over the last couple of weeks since we launched into 2022. Our download numbers have almost doubled, and so I want to thank and appreciate all of the new people that are exploring all the benefits of plants. Uh, 
I think it's fair to say that 2022 is off to a leafy green and peachy keen start. Today's episode is a particularly fun one for me because I get to dive into mindset and attitude, two things that are just to me so absolutely integral in life with my longtime pal, Nicole Daboom. Now, like me, Nicole is a former top-level swimmer turned professional triathlete turned entrepreneur who recently sold her popular company, Skirt Sports, that she founded in 2002. And she was the first company, sportswear company, to actually have a skirt that people could wear during their athletic competitions. It was absolutely brilliant. And now all the huge companies have followed suit, the Nikes, the Reeboks, Under Armors of the world. But she was the first. And she's recently started a new company called ASOP, where people can book interviews and record their memories for loved ones for posterity's sake. I love it. Now, why will this conversation resonate with you? Because, like all of us, Nicole's journey has not been linear. There have been stops and starts and struggles and plenty of setbacks along the way. And she is very open about discussing her battles with alcohol, the tension in her marriage, and she gets very very real, and I so appreciate it. Through it all, Nicole has remained relentlessly curious and passionate. And she, she has used her struggles to gain the muscle and the fortitude to keep going, even though it's never perfect. Today, she is almost 14 years sober. She is plant strong and as curious and open-minded as ever. And guess what? She is still not perfect. And I got news for you, neither are any of us. As you listen, I hope you'll be inspired to keep forging ahead and continue to make smart decisions about your body. Because as Nicole says, when your body is fit and strong, your mind is fitter and stronger too. Oh, yeah. Hey, gang, I am here with Nicole DeBoom. Nicole and I go back a long ways. She is truly one of the... Um, uh, she just like is a kindred spirit in so many different ways, but she's so much more than that as well. She is so wise. She is so op eternally optimistic, charming. You just have such a curiosity and almost like insatiable, just thirst for life. You just want to suck out every little bit of it. And uh, I have enjoyed becoming much better friends with you over the, the last several years. And I, I really feel like you have led such a fascinating, interesting life. And so almost in the spirit of the new venture that you are getting off the ground, right? I would love to actually almost turn that on you right now, because I think 
the different chapters that you have led in your life. And, and so, and, and to me, at times, it's not so much about reinventing yourself as it is about kind of continuing to grow and evolve and then kind of adding on to all the things you've learned along this life's path and journey. So I'm just going to start out of the gates. Tell me, Nicole, where did you, where did you grow up? And then tell me about how you got to Yale. Oh boy. Cool. I love it. The first 18 years, chapter number one. Well, first of all, thank you. This is amazing. And the business you're referring to is a new business I just started called Aesop, like the fables, right? Some people call it Aesop. I call it Aesop. Who cares what it's called? Um, But it's spelled A-E-S-O-P. And um, the idea behind it is that I want to help people capture their stories. And we captured your story not too long ago because you agreed to do it as part of like my sample reel. And it turned out to be this like incredible life lessons episode where we went through all your chapters and I actually put you on the spot on everyone, which I think you may be doing to me today. And I did not prepare for. So this will be fun. Um, and you had like the most profound um, just takeaways from each stage. And I don't know if this will be true for me, but when you were sharing your stories of your chapters of your life, mm-hmm. I could feel how one led to the next. And it was so obvious So it's that whole hindsight looking back. It was so obvious that you would be a pro triathlete and then become a firefighter, you know, like all those things. So, yeah, I'm excited. So thank you for giving me the opportunity because uh, it it is fun to turn the lens on yourself sometimes. And there's rarely an excuse to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I just, I just, again, I want to say that when you first told me about this business venture that you're going into, I was like, it sounds really interesting. But then when you were actually like interviewing me as a sample for, you know, for what it could look like so people could get an idea and how people can preserve and share the stories of their lives. I was like, oh my God, I, I want everybody I know to actually like do this and, and have it as a keepsake uh, for their families. It's like a little treasure trove. And then, and it's, and I told you this, that same morning, the COO of my company, Plan Strong, told me that, you know, I really want to do something to capture my father and all of his memories and everything. And will you do it? And I'm like, yeah, I'll do it. And then like five hours later, I said, no, you need to call Nicole DeBoom <laughs> and have her do it because she is, so, this is what she does. So, but anyway, let's, let's start with you. Cool. So, okay. Tell, tell well, me about the first 18 years and getting to Yale. Yeah. So in my early I grew up actually outside of Chicago in a little town called Downers Grove, Illinois. What's really funny is that there's a national, like nationals for cycling is in Downers Grove, Illinois. But I never knew that all growing up because I wasn't in that world. The world I gravitated to, or let's say like bubbled up to was swimming. So as like a little kid, I was sort of a little tomboy type I was a super skinny little twig. I ran around chasing after my sister and then she really didn't like me that much. So I made my own friends and chased around with them um, and just tried every single sport. My parents were like, you're going to try every sport. We'll just see what sticks. You just have to be busy. I did sports like every day of my life growing up. 
And there, and I sucked at many of them. Like most things that required hand-eye coordination, balls, like no way. I remember they made me do T-ball, hated T-ball. And one of the reasons I hated T-ball though, was I, I wasn't very strong, but I was super fast when I was little, like say seven years old, eight years old. And we were with the boys in T-ball at that age and some older kids too. And I remember they, you know, I had to go up to bat and it's a T, I mean, literally, but these boys were so mean. They're like, oh, she's up, move up everybody. And sure enough, like I'm all nervous anyway. I barely like hit the thing. I probably missed a whole bunch of times and finally hit it, bounced a couple feet. But it's like, that didn't make me feel good. What made me feel good was when I got dumped into the shallow end of the swimming pool for my first ever swim lessons. And by the end of day one, I had already graduated to the final highest level of swim lessons. That made me feel good. Yeah. So, you know, why, I think that why do boys do that to girls? Why, why do we feel so insecure that we have to try and beat them down? I, and the reason why I, I, I'm, I'm interrupting you is because yeah. I've got a seven-year-old daughter, right? Named yeah. Hope. And it's happening right now with her and the boys. And she actually is the best athlete out there. And these boys can't handle it. I was going to ask, do they still do it? Oh, oh, yeah, absolutely. Have you not gotten it with Wilder? Well, she's not doing a lot of sports that include boys. Yeah. yeah. But if she was, she probably would. Yeah. And um, it's, I, I don't know why boys do that. You tell me. <laughs> Tell me, why do boys do that? I think it's because we're insecure and we don't like that. The fact that, oh my God, you mean to tell me a girl is beating me? What does uh -huh. that say about me? But well, yeah. I was going to say, like, I don't know. And I agree with that. Like, it has to do with insecurity or trying to prove yourself or all the things that boys are trying to do at that age. Like, be strong, be the best, be competitive, have aggression, all the things that we still kind of teach that are a little bit gender centric, right? And girls are trying to figure out, should I be aggressive or should I be like in the one mile run, like slowing down to help my friend who's crying? Like the girls are, and so we're, I think boys do that too. I'm not sure if the gender line is quite as clear, but I do think you're right. It, it is still happening. Yeah. And I can't quite know why boys do that. And maybe we should like interview a bunch of little boys. Um, but yeah. then I thought, well, what should girls do when that happens to them? And what I did back then was just sort of close off. And I got really hypersensitive to my like, I didn't know it was femininity at the time, but like wanting to be a girl was really important to me, mm -hmm. but by genetics and who knows why I was also a really good athlete. And those two things definitely um, were at odds, especially as I got older and grew up in the eighties and nineties culture, you know, our society was really setting different standards for being feminine and being an athlete for a boy being masculine and being an athlete really were a very similar thing. So I don't know how all this, like, you know, ties into the question you just asked, but damn, well, we got to make some changes for these girls, yeah, but it definitely is going to tie into where you ended up with skirt sport. Oh yeah, yeah it is. Maybe. Totally. But, but so, so you're in the pool and you're like doing great. By the end of the yeah. first day, you're kicking some major butt. 
I mean, I was like five and, and my mom and dad were like, let's just put her in year round swim team. So I just started club swimming at the Hinsdale Hornets for um, I swam like, you know, almost every day. So I would do sports after school growing up and, you know, getting into junior high and whatever. I just did whatever sports were available, basketball, volleyball, softball, soccer, running that came into play. And then, you know, later on you go home and eat and then you go to swim practice. Right. That was kind of the life. Yeah. Um, and I was, I was very talented as a swimmer, you know, and I know you can relate to this and we go through little ebbs and flows. Right. But from the start, I was, you know, making the junior nationals or a junior, it was called JOs. Yeah. Right. As a kid, it was like the state national state championships or something. And, uh, and as you aged up, you'd, suck a little more that year. You still made the cuts though. Right. So swimming was sort of this baseline, like where I had a lot of confidence. And I think confidence is one of the things that has carried me through all these chapters. And I developed it as a swimmer growing up, but I will say there was another sport that I was really good at. So in sixth grade at my junior high, the only like varsity sport a sixth grader could do was cross country. The other sports you couldn't do as varsity until you were in seventh grade. So I was like, okay, I'll go do cross country. I knew I was a good runner. I was always really fast at everything. And it was a one mile. Now they run longer, I think, but back then it was one mile. So I went out and the very first meet ever, I think I ran like I won the whole thing, all the girl beat all the girls. And I think I ran like a six forty-five mile or something. And everyone was like, whoa, what just happened? And then I won every single meet that entire year. And by the end of the year, I think I ran like, I don't know, a six twenty mile in sixth grade. That's, that's good. That was really good. Yeah. And I look at these little photos in my, like, I had those tube socks yeah. You know, with the stripes and my hair was wild. My hands were doing like limp wristed. And I was just flying. I remember the feeling of flying and I was learning how to listen to your breathing and all these really cool things. Right. And then in seventh grade, I won every single race and I ended the year with like a 559. And then in eighth grade, I won every single race and I finished the year with a 525 mile. Wow. And the high school teams were out looking at me like, and I remember the high school coach, they were like, wow, so cross country. And I was like, nope, I'm swimming. <laughs> I was like, screw you. I'll do track. I'm going to swim in the fall. So it was just this, like, I think I just sort of grew up thinking, knowing that I was awesome. Mm -hmm. I was an awesome athlete and I was an awesome student and I had insecurities like we mentioned. And as most kids do, as they're like going into puberty, but I was just, I was a performer. Mm -hmm. I kicked butt in everything I did. Well, <laughs> crazy. Hey, you know what? Why not? Right. If you can do it. And so, so what is, so did you just swim all throughout high school and you didn't, you didn't actually do track? No, I actually did track and I was really good. And I'll tell you there, it's interesting. I swam, I joined the, the high school swim team, but I was on a, a year round club team, which was way more badass, mm -hmm. like super hardcore and one of the best teams in the state. And Illinois was a good swimming school and, or swimming state. And, um, so 
my freshman year, I, I did okay. Like I qualified for state and swimming. That was good. I was one of the only ones. But um, sophomore year, I was like, came out screaming. But because our high school coaching was not nearly at par with what I'd done all summer, my times went backward. I didn't even qualify. Mm. It was like, what just happened? And I think I was starting to hit puberty a little bit. And I was still probably 115 pounds, you know, like scrawny. Um, And I was a breaststroker. I swam 100 breaststroke, 200 IM and some of the sprint freestyles for the relays and stuff. But um, so after I was kind of humiliated because I was built up to be, you know, the shit in my high school swimming. And I went to this coach, this, I went actually to a new club team that was even more badass. And the coach didn't even know my name. And I kind of just hung in there and got myself through the next couple months. And, and out of the blue, out of nowhere, in like January of, it was 1987 or 88, I think, 1988, I qualified for junior nationals. Mm. And I went up to him and then he knew my name. And he was like, oh, wow. So that happened. And our family actually, I, I then started running track that spring and nationals were coming up and my family went on a trip to Cancun, Mexico on spring break, like all these things. So I wasn't training that, you know, trying to get some training and whatever. And then I showed up at nationals in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, and the coach, there were like five of us and the coach was kind of like, all right, let's go see what you got. I got up on the blocks. I swam the hundred breaststroke. I touched the wall and I had dropped almost three seconds. <laughs> I went a 105.12. I'll never forget that. Yeah. It was like a swim that changed my life. I was seated first and I qualified for Olympic trials, which wow. was that summer as a 16 year old out of nowhere. And I remember the feeling I touched the wall and I was like, what the hell? Like everyone was still coming in, you know, I wasn't in a seated heat or anything and I couldn't believe it. And I got out and I kept looking back at the clock and my coach was going insane. And uh, I get over there and I felt like I was walking on clouds. Like I was like, what is this feeling? And it was almost like it became almost a drug for me as an athlete. And I believe it was the feeling of surpassing any expectation you could have ever set for yourself. Do you remember that feeling as an athlete? Sure. Yes. Yeah. It's very elusive, but yes, when you get it, it's nothing like it. And then, and then you chase it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's the dangerous part. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of like a drug, huh? <laughs> <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, that's, that, that was a big shift for me. And the thing is, I had been running track and I was really fast. Our eight, we did the uh, 3,200 meter relay. I, we all ran an 800 and our relay team was second in the state. Hmm. And my 800 was like a 210 or something. Like I was fast. But when I made Olympic trials, I said, I'm not going to run anymore because if I'm this good, I'm now seated fifth in the country in the hundred breaststroke, I'm getting recruited to colleges before I'm even a junior and I'm swimming in the trials, which 
you know, I ended up kind of bombing, but you know, at the end of the day, who cares? I, I finished, you know, smack dab in the middle of the field, 42nd out of 84, which really isn't bad. I got to like swim in the cool down pool with Matt Biondi yeah. and watching Janet Evans. And I saw Rowdy Gaines, like, I think swim his last. What year was that? It was 88. Okay. It might've been the first trials. He didn't Rowdy didn't make it, or he was on a relay as an alternate or, you know, it was just like this really cool generation, this cool group of, of athletes to watch. And, um, but here's what happened when I quit running, I never got faster as a swimmer. Mm-hmm. I mean, we think singular focus is a term that's used often as pro athletes. Like, well, you have to be singularly focused to win the Ironman or to, you know, win prize money and do the things you want to do to be the best. But when I became singularly focused, I never swam faster. I swam faster in other events, but my hundred breaststroke was never faster. So the fastest you ever went was 105.12? In the in yards, yes. I did go f- faster relatively in meters, but yeah. Wow. And that sucked. <laughs> but it was amazing. It yeah. was all this like I don't know how to feel about it still. But so um, how did you end up at Yale of all schools? You know, I, I did all the recruiting trips. And by then I had already become a little burned out on swimming and a lot excited about partying. Mm-hmm. And I used those recruiting trips as a tool to party my brains out. And it was crazy looking back. I'm like, God, did I waste some of that like opportunity? But... <laughs> It was what it was. It felt very normal to me. I wasn't the only one being crazy out there. Um, I chose Yale based on my gut feeling. Mm-hmm. You know, I went to Stanford and Princeton and Michigan and UCLA. I got scholarship offers to some of them, and I chose the Ivy League that doesn't give scholarship offers. My dad had gone there, wow. and. I kind of didn't want to go because he went, but when I visited, it just felt right. So I think, you know, that gut feeling is an important lesson that I learned early on. Right. And you you listen to it. Yeah, exactly. Because when you're making a decision that big, you have all these factors, but the one at the very end of the line is how does it feel in your, in your core, not even your heart or your head. It's like your gut. Mm-hmm. Where does it, how does it feel down there? Yeah. Um, now, did you end up swimming at, at Yale with Frank Keefe? Yeah, I did. Yeah. <laughs> he is so awesome. I went to his retirement party. That's like the only other time I went back to Yale. It was maybe, I don't know, 10 years ago. Um, he was amazing. I was in this, when I was swimming there, all the women on the team were like beautiful Amazon women. They were like six feet tall with like three foot long blonde hair. All of them, I swear, except for me. And um, <laughs> what do you mean? What are you, 5'11"? <laughs> I was the shorter. I was 5'7". Now I'm even shorter. We'll get to that later with my back issues. But um, it was just like this time of we were coming onto the scene and we were getting more dominant in the Ivy Leagues and we had multiple swimmers qualifying for NC2As. And I was sort of leading my um, my class of recruitment. And uh, but I I enjoyed it. I loved it. I loved being part of a team. 
I loved walking on campus two weeks before school started and feeling like I already had a family. It was amazing. Amazing. And, but I never swam faster in those events. I swam faster in other events. Um, but when you asked, did I swim there? I swam there some of the time I burned out. I partied so hard that by the end of, I, I quit swimming junior year. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to swim anymore. I partied, I smoked pot and I sucked at smoking pot, but I wanted to be so good at smoking pot, but I just kept, you know, falling back to my go-to, which was drinking. And I was a terrible drinker, but I felt like I was a great drinker. And I had created this whole identity around wanting to be a party girl. And, oh my God, I'm so glad video didn't exist or wasn't as successful. So when you say like, what is... When you say you were a party girl, what exactly does that look like? I, I just, I think I just loved the feeling that I had when I drank and I sought out any opportunity I could to let loose in that way. When I wasn't drinking, I think I felt like I couldn't let loose in a way that there was something inside of me that wanted to let loose, like like be very reckless and do things I wouldn't do if I was totally sober, you know? So I, at an Ivy league, you can party every single night. If you want, I found ways to do that. And uh, so when you ask what it looked like, I mean, I was at swim team. I mean, the swimmers party, they were oh. notorious for it. And I know you know this, but we had a mixed team at Yale. So the men and women hung out together, scantily clad, constant hormones raging all the teams were completely incestuous everybody hooked up with everybody and everybody worked so hard with your head down staring at the black line that you just you needed an outlet for that mm-hmm. when you finally got out of the pool and so were your did your grades suffer at all or were you able to keep those where you wanted them well i don't know if it's where i wanted them but i ended up kind of getting a b right at right. yale i got yeah. a b yeah. <laughs> so I was a B student there and I learned the system. Uh-huh. It's a good question because I often, I don't feel guilt, but I do wish that I had taken more advantage of the academic opportunities. Like, you know, the, the Dalai Lama would come to Yale and I'd be like, I'm going to go party at the bar. Like I didn't <laughs> do these really cool things, um, uh-huh. but I did learn the system. And I learned the, what, I guess I learned how I worked best. I learned that I was really good at writing papers. I learned that I wasn't great at test taking, but partly because I never went to class. Hmm. You know, it's like you, I learned how to, how to carve my own path there to get me through the academic part. And I didn't fall in love with an academic area of study. Yeah. I wished I wanted to, but I didn't. So what did you major in? Sociology. Okay. Like everybody else who didn't find what they wanted to do. So you, yeah. No, this is so cool. So I did not obviously think about this at the time, but I had to write a, a senior thesis and it was like a 50 page paper and it, you had to do an experiment or something. And then you, you know, came up and you wrote your whole thesis on it. And I decided to write a paper that I titled the female athlete an oxymoron. 
Wow. And I dissected feminine and athlete and how they were at odds. And I interviewed all these athletes and I have the paper behind me sitting here somewhere. And I came, I found that women who participated in sports like that were skimpy uniforms or were judged like diving and gymnastics had a way higher precedent of eating disorders um, and bad body image than women athletes who were in sports like basketball or soccer where they had to be aggressive and who cares what they looked like. And it was just like fascinating looking back. And my conclusion was like, they're never going to come together unless we come up with a new standard for what female and athlete need to be. Well, and that goes all the way back to when you were seven years old. (laughs) Yes. It right? does. So you you wrote you wrote that that kick ass fifty page yeah. thesis, yeah. which I'm sure you got an A plus on. No, I got a B minus, <laughs> and I'm so mad. I I blame my. You know how you have to have like a guide, a professor. Yeah. It was a guy. Uh, what does he know about being a female athlete? Come on. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it. You know, I'm sure it was like uh, maybe not the very best <laughs> writing in history, but. Um, no, I think it's cool. And I was glad I dug it out. And it was crazy to me how so much of it still resonates. Yeah, that's really cool. So you also mentioned that um, you did a fair amount of alcohol. Um, you wanted to be a, a pothead, blah, blah, blah. And one of the reasons that you did the alcohol was because you wanted to kind of be uninhibited, right? And And all that. Do you feel like that's something that you've been able to like leave behind and now you're able to break free without any kind of substances or alcohol? Yes. And I'm so grateful. Um, But it did chase me around for many years after college. And, um, you know, I think alcohol abuse is prevalent in most families at somewhere, you know, and it has been shown that there is some genetic, uh, you know, correlation And, uh, my mom got treatment for alcohol, alcoholism when I was in sixth grade, her dad, some of her brothers, you know, my dad's family. So here's the interesting thing. When I was in sixth grade, the school counselor called me in and I had to do some counseling during school, which was mortifying. But, um, they, I remember them telling me you cannot drink alcohol because you have a much higher chance of becoming an alcoholic because your mom is. Mm. And that may work for some people, but it almost had the opposite effect. I mean, for years when I was really young, I was like, oh, never drink alcohol. But then by like sophomore year in high school, it was like, what is this thing that just makes me feel so good? Tastes terrible, but it feels good. The thing for me with alcohol is that I was a blackout drinker. And that's scary. It is terrifying. Um, I, I always wanted to be a controlled drinker. I wished I could. I wanted to. I'd be like, I'm going to drink up just to the line before I don't remember anything and stop. And the next morning, you know, I'd wake up somewhere and I'd be like, oh, what happened? I didn't, I didn't quite stop in time, you know? And that happened frequently. So can college. I ask you this? Because I've never experienced that. And that is, so is it basically where you actually are going about, I mean, you drink to the point to where you're going out and you're talking to people mm-hmm. and, but you just black out and you don't remember any of it. Is that yes. right? So you don't just like black out and fall in bed and fall asleep. 
No, I call that passing out. <laughs> Most people I know have passed out, right? You drink a bunch and then you're just like laying down and the next morning you wake up. Blacking out, you drink a bunch, you don't actually lay down, but your brain doesn't remember any of it. You may as well just be passed out. And that's when it's so terrifying because yeah. I would call my friends the next morning and be like, what I do? What happened? And I was so relieved when it wasn't something bad. But sometimes how, it was something bad. But, but how often? How often would you drink to the point of blacking out? I mean, when you, whenever you drank, did it have to go to that level? No, not every single time. But if it was a night where I was like, "I'm gonna party tonight. Let's get the shots out. We're gonna paint the town pink." I mean, <laughs> totally. And I mean, I was a girl who was calling for shots and doing all the. I wanted to be this drinker. I don't know. It's so screwed up this like identity. That's so negative, but you are holding on to it like for dear life. And, um, I, it happened often a couple times a week. I yeah. mean, this was not once a year, you know, it was dangerous, very dangerous. And I, somehow I'm alive. I'm not in jail. I don't have HIV. Like I didn't do heroin. I, I mean, I could have been slipped some stuff at some point, but I'll never know because I would have been blacked out anyway. Yeah. All right. I want to, I want to re- yeah. revisit this along our kind yeah. of continuum. It'll come back into play. Yeah. Okay. 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 <laughs> it's time to take a small break for a little episode of Plant Strong Proof. This is a letter from a listener, which always makes my day when I share these. This particular letter came in from Carrie. She's from Glastonbury, Connecticut, and she writes, in November 2019, I watched The Game Changers and became vegetarian the very next day. I was a vegetarian in my younger years, but over time gave it up for no good reason. I'd read about giving up dairy, but always thought it seemed so extreme. Also, I didn't want to be perceived as difficult. After watching The Game Changers, something just clicked and I realized how I choose to eat is my business, my body, my life. Lucky for me, my husband and son came along for the ride. In 2020, we were vegetarian, but still ate some dairy. Then in 2021, I told my guys I was gonna sign up for the seven day Plan Strong Challenge and much to my surprise, They both said that they would join me, heck, only seven days. Even more surprising, after seven days, my son said that he was never eating meat or dairy again. My husband will occasionally eat dairy when he is out, but for the last year, we've been a whole food, plant-based household. It has been a journey to completely change the way we eat. It is interesting how my tastes have changed so much but I know I will never go back. While I originally went whole food plant-based for health reasons, thinking about the plight of the dairy cow is what made it easier to give up cheese. And never in a million years did I think that my chicken wing loving husband would change his diet so much. But he actually noticed a difference in how he felt, so he is willing to keep going. I haven't had a migraine headache in a year, and no more arthritis in my hands and feet. I could stand to lose five or 10 pounds, but I know this lifestyle is what prevented me from gaining weight during the pandemic. 
I'm so grateful to Rip and the whole Plan Strong team and the community for being so supportive and paving the way. I was so happy to participate in the 2022 challenge and cheer everyone on, especially those here for the very first time. The journey continues. If you made it this far, thanks for reading my very long post. Well, Carrie, first, that wasn't all that long and you and your family are doing it. Just keep your eye on the Plan Strong Prize and keep rocking away. And for anyone listening, the seven day challenge is a great way to introduce the lifestyle to your family. I'll be sure to link a one page guideline in our show notes and invite you to jump into our community for lots of support and encouragement from folks just like Carrie. Thanks again. Okay, now let's get back to Nicole Da Boom. You graduated from Yale. Then what was your next move? Because I know at some point, you know, you 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 went down the same path I did, which was uh-huh. you decided to become a professional <laughs> triathlete of all the crazy things. <laughs> I mean, we had to be at some like starting lines together. Um, I got into triathlon after college because. I mean, yeah. I just started getting into triathlon because I didn't know what I was going to do. Remember I had that sociology degree. Yeah, yeah. So I was like waiting tables and feeling a little depressed. And I remember my mom going, you know, you, why don't you go talk to a counselor? So I went and saw a counselor and she gave me this, like, I, I was just like, I don't know what I'm doing. Like, and she goes, well, of course you're starting to feel depressed. You don't have any purpose. Um, that's normal at your age and stage, but maybe you can do this little exercise that might be able to help you get some direction. And she said, why don't you go home and write down all the times in your life that you felt the most alive, that you felt the best about yourself. Oh, nice. And she goes, just write, write all of it, big stuff, small stuff, whatever. And then just see what comes up. And I wrote it all down. And what came up was a very clear um, trend or pattern. And from that pattern came this mantra that I still use in my life. It's like a founding foundational block for me. And it is that when your body is fit and strong, your mind is fitter and stronger too. Mm -hmm. Because all the times I felt the best, I was in great shape. I had goals. I was working towards something. And I just realized that no matter what I did in my life, I needed to be able to carve out the time to include fitness because that would keep my brain strong, Mm -hmm. the strongest it could be. Mm -hmm. So I was like, well, I'm waiting tables. I still don't know what I want to do for a career, but I've always wanted to do this triathlon thing. Ever since I saw this lady named Julie Moss crawl across the line with like poopy pants and the whole thing, you know? And I was like, that is awesome. And most people are like, that looks terrible. But I was like, I got to try it. So I got into triathlon. I just started doing tries. And what year was that? That was 1995. Wow. Yeah. And here's what's cool, Rip, because I mean, we definitely crossed paths. You were, you were in your prime. Um, But that year I did a whole bunch of races, including a qualifier for our world world's team. So I was this 20 to 24 age grouper and I qualified to go to ITU world champs in Cancun, Mexico. Mm-hmm. This was the year that Karen Smyers won both Hawaii and Cancun yeah. world champs. And, uh, 
when I got on the airplane in October of 1995, this all these like very gorgeous fit ripped people were walking down the, the aisle because the whole U.S. team was sort of merging on that flight. Right. And these two guys walked on who kind of looked similar. Mm-hmm. And I remember just looking at the second one and going that one, that's the one I want to sit next to me. And they came down and they kept getting closer to my row. And I was like laser focused, like I'm willing this to happen. The cute guy never sits next to me on the airplane and they get down to my row and the first guy stops and he looks at his ticket and he turns to the other side. And I was like, okay, good. I have a shot. The second guy stops, he looks and he turns towards me and sits down right next to me. And what was was his name? Tim (laughs) DeBoom. Wow. And for people have, that have no idea, because um, I'm sure uh, many of our listeners don't know about the sport of triathlon like we do, um, who, who is Tim DeBoom? <laughs> well, at the time, he was a first-year pro, and he had just been 10th in his first pro race in Hawaii when Mark Allen won his last one. Yeah. Um, but men, in, in the years to come, he would become one of the world's best triathletes for over a decade. He won the Hawaii Ironman twice and he's still the last American to win the Hawaii Ironman in 2001 and 2002. And uh, I did not know when this quiet, like sensitive, gorgeous guy (laughs) would sit next to me that I would marry him a year later and that we would pursue a triathlon life and that I would become a pro. But all I knew is that something special was happening. And, wow. uh, yeah. So I, 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 I guess I did not remember, recall that you guys got married a year later. A year so later. you guys were young and you were just starting your triathlon careers for the most part. Wow. Yeah. We have our 25th coming up in a, a few weeks. Yeah. Yeah. So that was cool. And, and, you know, that started the next chapter of my life, which I kind of think of as the triathlon years. Yeah. And so that was what a decade for you? Yeah. Um, I raced pro for six years. Tim raced pro for about 20 years. Yeah. And it's interesting. Um, you know, singular focus comes really into play here a lot because the greatest times were during triathlon, the lowest times were during during triathlon, you know, and a lot of it was based around whether Tim won or lost. It wasn't me necessarily. I was kind of steady. I sort of think I was along for the ride. Mm -hmm. Like I was a great triathlete. And if I was married to anybody else in America, like I would be the shit in my household. But I was married to like a two-time Ironman world champ. I was sort of the second priority. You know, he wanted to support me, of course, but like he was making the money. I (laughs) I was getting the same sponsors as him. It's like, I was sort of like the tag on. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, and I didn't resent it at first, but looking back, I think I resented it as we went. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what did you resent? I think at first I just really loved supporting Tim, but when I decided I also wanted to pursue my goals and try to be a pro and see how good I could be and, um, he was used to being supported, not being a supporter, Mm -hmm. you know, and that's a hard, it's a different skill set. 
Yeah. It's a really hard pattern to change. And even though I won an Ironman, you know, and I won a lot of races and I actually won decent money for a triathlete. I think in my big winning years, Rip, I probably made like 75 grand or something for a triathlete. That's insane. Triathletes make like $5,000 and they call it a win. No, that's good I paid for my expenses, like boom. But, you know. And so how did that, did that resentment show in your relationship at all? Were you able to express it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, And this might be where alcohol comes back in a little bit too, because even as a high performing athlete who was using my body to make money, I still needed that outlet and I needed this like sort of party release and Tim, that was not his thing. And I just, I would use it and I made dumb decisions and I would be crazy. And I could just see that it was pulling us apart a little bit. I was like, I want to go this way. I'm tired of living like a freaking monk, you know, Mm -hmm. even though doing that wasn't necessarily going to help my career. And that's, I think that's where the, the big friction could be seen but it was the deeper part of it was that we just weren't connecting for, you know, at that period of time. So Tim, here he is like winning the race that should make him happy and he's not even happy. And then when he wasn't happy because he always wanted to win the next one, I got more mad. I'm like, when's enough enough? Like there's gotta be more right out here. So it was, a it was an interesting ride, you know? Um, the alcohol actually hit its head a few years later, like it took a while. And what ended up happening for me is that I started my next chapter. I purposely started my next chapter, which didn't really include Tim while I was still racing. At what point did you decide, okay, I need to like start transitioning out of the triathlons and find something else to focus on? Yeah, I think I saw what Tim had given to triathlon and how much pain it was causing our marriage and relationships around him. And I thought, I don't have that to give Mm. to this sport. And I don't want to give that much to this sport. I may have that much to give to something else and maybe it'll cause some problems later, but it's not for this sport and this sport it's, it's just, and so my eyes were just open. Mm -hmm. And for me, I think I was very open to ideas. I didn't know it was the end of my racing career, but looking back, it was towards the end of my racing career. It's just sort of open. There are times in your life when you're closed Mm -hmm. and there's times in your life when you're open, you know, and one day I was out on a training run when I lived in Lyons, Colorado. It was December of 2003. And I had literally pulled on my all men's black, extra small, bad fitting training clothes to go out for this gloomy run. And I, and I had like a beanie on my head and you couldn't see my hair, which is one of those feminine defining features. And I looked at my reflection in the storefront window and I was like, holy shit, I look like a boy. I'm completely completely uninspired. And I, I just want to feel pretty. 
And, and I, I kind of tried to keep running a little bit and that word pretty just like grew in my head and literally forced me to turn around and run home. And it was like, something's changing right now. Something's changing and it has to do with feeling pretty and what I'm wearing. And, uh, I wrote all these notes when I came home about wanting to start a line of women's clothing that would combine feminine and athlete. Oh my God. Right. <laughs> yeah. The hell am I seven again? And, no, uh, back, you're back at Yale writing your paper. <laughs> no, but now I'm going to get an A plus on it. Right. So I, I, yeah, that's how it turned out. And I, I, I didn't realize it at that moment, but that was the, basically that was the business plan for skirt sports, six lines of text at starting a women's clothing company. I said, I want to be like what Venus and Serena did in tennis. Like there were skirts out there, but no one had done skirts for running. Yeah. You know, nobody had taken these like terrible shorts that women were pulling out of their crotch every five steps and you're getting chub rub and your butt's hanging out and they had granny panties underneath them. It was saggy and they fit bad. Like no one had figured that out. And I was like, well, what if you covered your butt on the run, but in doing so you actually made it kind of sexier. And it was like, boom. It was an epiphany. What a, what a great epiphany and what a classy way to show femininity. And I think you, you wrote somewhere, you know, here I am cross. So you actually, you actually won, if I'm not mistaken, the Wisconsin Ironman on September 12th, like 2014 or 2004, something like that. Wearing one of your loincloths. I think you called it a loincloth. <laughs> yes, totally. You know, it's so funny. Um, well, first of all, like I didn't invent the skirt. Skirts existed. I invented the running skirt. That did not exist. No. Can you get an and, IP? Did you get, were you able to get an IP on that? Or no. no, I can't do that. No. And, and it's okay because then it might've been a weird little tiny category product. The whole world blew up. I was on the title, the front of like a tidal wave of femininity in sport. It was like the minute we came out, all these other companies were also like kind of towing this bridge going, we got to make clothing that actually fits women's bodies. We got to make clothing that's fun, not black, you know, like colorful and cool and has features women want. So we were just, I was riding that wave. And so I crossed that finish line and yeah, it was a loincloth. It was literally a home sewn. I had a race belt yeah. and I sewed two pieces of red mesh fabric on. It. I had somebody else do it. Cause I don't even know how to sew. And here I am starting a women's clothing company, <laughs> no business background. I don't have a sewing machine. Um, but I just learned it as I went and it became so apparent to me here. I win an Ironman, like the biggest race in my career. Three days later, I took my five grand. I incorporated skirt sports, Inc. Yeah. Well, you, you definitely were onto something. And now what does Nike and everybody, everybody's everybody. got them. Everybody's, yeah, everybody's got them. It took it? only a few years. Wow. Wow. Yeah. What's, what's crazy is when you hit upon something really amazing like that, how you're, the, <laughs> it's hard to stay out in front of that wave, isn't it? Oh, it is. It's so hard. And we didn't. I mean, we didn't. We couldn't have. I mean, I ran the business for 15 years. We did over $40 million in sales over 15 years. Some years were big, some years sucked. We had so many like roller coaster rides. I mean, there were just cycles. And it wasn't ever supposed to be the only thing I did for the rest of my life. 
you know, but during the beginning, I look back on it and I started skirt sports to create something for myself mm-hmm. too. You know, Tim had his thing. Yeah. I and needed my thing. Oh, and you created it. And did you, so over the evolution of your marriage with Tim, did he kind of become a supporter of skirt sport? Yeah. It took a little while, like a couple years into skirt sports, our marriage was like really rocky. And part of that was because Tim was still chasing a win and he was coming down the other side of the bell curve. Yeah. And you like to think that champion athletes like win the big one and hang it up. Wouldn't that be a great dream? But then if you hang it up, you'd probably always look back and go, could I won? could I have won another one? And so he just, he won two and then he had a medical issue and then he kept trying to come back. And I was done. I was like, I don't, I can't, he's got to move on. Right. And it took him a long time to move on. And I was frustrated. And so I was starting my own thing and I was getting praise. My ego had never been so big. Mm-hmm. I was like, I am the shit. Everyone loves me. I'm making people happy. I'm like succeeding in business in a way that I had never succeeded as a triathlete. Yeah. Well, you were on that cloud, just like you were when you, when you won that one meet and you went 105.12. You know, I've never put that together. You're right. And you're right. And except it lasted a couple years. And while during that time, it lasted a few years, but a couple years in the drinking just came to a head. Like I had to stop or I was ready to walk out of the marriage and I was just drinking and like my eyes were open in all kinds of ways rip. Like I was like, I think I need to find love somewhere else. This is not working. It's not fulfilling me. And Tim was like, please try, please stay. I said, okay, but only if you work on all your stuff. Cause I was like, it's all you, not me. Right. But then he said, I need you to stop drinking. And I was like, fine, I'll stop drinking only so that when I look back in five years, I can say, I gave everything I had to trying, but I know it's not going to work. What and year was this drinking. roughly, you know, that was, um, 2008. Okay. And then, so have you been successful? Yeah, I've been sober ever since. Wow. I stopped on my own. Um, I had a lot of support from friends. If I needed to get, you know, help or intervention or join an organized group, I definitely would have because I tried to stop other times in my life. I always knew, even right after college, I remember taking like three months off and I was like, oh, I could drink again. But I can't drink again. If I have a drink mm-hmm. at some point, I'll be blackout drunk. It might take two years. It might take two weeks, but like, I'm going to get back there. My history shows me that that will happen. And my biggest fear in stopping drinking was that I thought I wouldn't be fun anymore. And I'm fun, really fun, Yeah. but, it, but I'm fun in a different way. And I'm not an asshole. <laughs> I wake up knowing what I did the day before and I'm healthier and all of those things. And I don't care if people drink like drink, but if it's hurting you or people you love, then you should look at that mm-hmm. because there's no time for that pain. Mm-hmm. 
so you stopped drinking and then did your relationship with Tim, were you guys able to kind of figure that out? Yeah. I mean, it has still, it took a couple more turns, but like it taking that out of the equation, I could make decisions with a clear mind. And I really got back to thinking about my gut, right? Mm -hmm. What I really wanted. And, you know, the first like six months I woke up every day and I was like, I want to be in this marriage, but I didn't really believe it after I stopped drinking. And there was just this day. And I I think it was like six months in, it took a while. And I woke up and I was like, I want to be in this marriage. And it hit me that I actually did. Hmm. It just, if you say it enough times, if you push towards something hard enough and you're consistent and persistent, you know, it can change. And today, are you just so grateful that you decided to like weather the storm and figure it out? And yes, because we wouldn't have our baby. We wouldn't have Wilder. (laughs) We wouldn't. And I wouldn't, I I would, it would have taken me out. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't be here sitting, talking to you. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't be here all plant strong. I'd be doing things that are unhealthy for me, you know, and justifying them. And surrounding myself with people who help me justify them instead of surrounding myself by people who believe in me for who I am Mm -hmm. and support me for who I am. So I want to talk about where skirt sport is today and and that evolution. But before I, you know, so Tim started a newsletter maybe a year ago, if I'm not mistaken, something like that called a dedicated life. And I love reading it. But he just sent one out just a couple of days ago. And I think it was the 10th anniversary of him officially retiring from the sport of triathlon. And he started it out by saying, you know, he kind of left this item underneath the bike racks and it was, you know, significant for a reason. And I'm like, well, what did you leave? I want to know what you left underneath and why. And, and I think he got it in combination from you, because I think it's something that you did. And it's also a tradition for the Hawkeye wrestling team. And, and I'd love for you to share that, what you did, what he did and the significance of that. Cause I think it's really powerful that you were able, both of you were able to know, okay, it's time. It's time. It's time to close this chapter and move on to another one, which as we've been talking about is not easy to do. And I don't care who you are, if you're doing triathlons, you know, if you're a, if you're, you know, a, um, if you're a lawyer, doctor, it doesn't matter what your career is. When's it yeah. time to move on? Ending things is hard. <laughs> and sometimes you don't even know it's the end until you're in the middle of the last day of it. And suddenly it shows itself to you that it is the end. And what you're referring to is the last race Tim did as a pro. And many years prior to his last race, I had my last race as a pro. And for me, I had already started skirt sports. My energy was there, but I was still racing because I believed you didn't want to quit your day job till you knew your, your new job was going to work. Right. And I remember I worked an expo at the Chicago triathlon the entire weekend. And then I went and did the race and it was my worst finish ever in my six years. I had never been out of the money 
And in that race, I was slogging around in a more professional loincloth and thinking, well, I'm promoting my company, but as I'm slogging around in total pain, I was in 12th place for the first time out of the money ever. And in my head, I was like, when I finish this, I'm done. I'm going to leave my shoes in transition and walk away. And I did. And that was in late 2005, like less than a year after I started skirt. And, you know, years later, Tim did the same thing. He just, we, he had a storied career, but he wasn't proud of it until years later. And it's very hard to watch somebody do something amazing and not be proud of it. And, but at that time, you know, we had had a daughter and he thought he was going to keep racing. So he did a couple more races and at the end, you know, within six months, the race you're alluding to, he just knew it was time. He left his shoes in transition, walked away and never did another pro race. <laughs> yeah. So well, cool. Yeah. Um, so let's transition now to skirt sport. So how, when did, when, when did you know it was time for you to put your skirt underneath the bike rack and you know, kind of leave that? Cause that, what a, what a passion and love affair you had for that. Oh my gosh. It was incredible. I'm a really good starter. I'm not that good at hanging around for the long ride. I'm not good at hanging around when it's boring. I like to do create stuff, right? So literally halfway through my 15-year ride, I was already bored, I think. I was like creating everything you could think of, race series, and we had a crowdsourcing thing. We did this Kickstarter um, I, I had gotten all these women who were like, I have urinary incontinence. You have to help me. I created a skirt with what we called a trap door <laughs> so that you could literally just stand there with a skirt covering you and unleash the trap door and pee next to a guy who's peeing without having to squat and go in a porta potty. We literally created this skirt we called the gotta go and we sold 800 units on Kickstarter. It was like, what the hell? Everything I just, I had to keep creating to the point where it became a little bit of a detriment to the company. And I had investors and I really wanted to make them so happy. But what I learned looking back is that if you don't sell your company during the original hockey stick, like three to five years in while you're still growing fast, your chances of getting a really good return just get lower. And so I'm an athlete like you. When things get hard, I would just try harder. And sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't. And after a few of those cycles, every cycle took three years, by the way. It's a long time to run another business cycle. I was faced with another business cycle in um, late 2019. And I was like, I don't want to do it it's not the best time to sell my business, but I'm going to try to sell it. And if I can't sell it, I'm going to close it. It's time. I have to do it. I have to do it for my own mental health, for the health of my family. And I'm going to do my very best. Even if I end up shutting the company down, I'm going to win at ending. Mm -hmm. And so when we talk about ending, like I got some advice from a friend because I thought, well, while I'm working on this, I should be working on my next thing. What's it going to be? And my friend said, Nicole, you cannot start something else until you give everything you can to ending this chapter. And so with that advice, I just put my head down and went. And uh, I said, there could be a fairy tale ending. 
but I don't know if it's going to be there. So I'm going to act as if it's not. And I spent the early part of 2020. um, Well, the first thing that happened is I thought I might actually resurrect and do another three-year cycle. And in January of 2020, I was like, thank God 2019 is behind us. It sucked. 2020 is going to be an amazing year. And six weeks later, we're in a global pandemic. People were losing their jobs. Healthy companies were going out of business and nobody bought anything. And we weren't healthy enough to withstand a couple months of not hitting numbers. So I just knew it was time. And, uh, and you know what happened? The fairy tale. It happened. I found a buyer. I shut the company down. We did amazing with that process. I mean, it was insane. It could have been the worst time of my life and it wasn't. It was amazing time. When you say you shut the company down, what exactly do you mean? Like, what does that look like? Well, we started um, the process of shutting down. We had almost a million dollars of inventory we had to sell. So by shutting down, I'm like, well, I don't know if a buyer will, will show it herself or himself. So I have to sell all this. And I had to sell it all to online customers because no businesses were buying inventory in the beginning of a pandemic. We didn't know what was happening. So what, what, what percent of your business at Skirtsport by the end was, was D to C and what was retail? It was like towards the end, it was kind of a half to half and half. Uh-huh. Um, and we had a couple of big accounts, but it was just done. It had to be done. Everything was changing, uh, investment, everything was drying up, you know, financing all of it. So, so what was that fairy tale? How did that happen? Yeah. (laughs) I, I got a lot of interest. I decided that if anybody needed to know, if we were going to sell the business, we couldn't do it in private, how most companies sell. Like one day they're operating, the next day they're like, now we're owned by Hormel. You know, you're like, how did that happen? Um, I just put out a press release. I said, Skirt Sports is seeking a new owner. Contact me. <laughs> and I got maybe 30 serious phone calls from individuals, companies, VC, um, et cetera. And one of them became the new owner of Skirt Sports. And I realized, you know, she's not going to want all this old inventory anyway. So let's just sell it all. We came up with a plan and I said, I'm going to sell every last piece by August 17th of 2020 because it's a Sunday and I'm going on vacation that day and you got to pick a day. And it was the morning of August 17th, 2020. I woke up, we had 20 units left of extra small black one piece swimsuits. Like not even skirts. And I was like, I freaking hope there's 20 extra small women who want a black one piece swimsuit for like $6 today. Cause I'm hitting send on this email. I hit send and by noon they were sold. And I, I emailed the woman who bought the last one. And I said, you bought the very last piece of skirt sports. As we know it, there may be a new chapter someday. I wasn't announcing yet. And she wrote me back and she said, I've been wearing your skirts for 14 years, Nicole. I'm so happy to have helped you here, you know? And it was just like, wow. And Rip, I loaded up my family that day and we went to this little mountain town called Steamboat Springs on vacation. We wanted, we were thinking maybe we should move. Maybe Boulder needs to be done. We've been here 25 years. And we had actually put an offer on a house here and we lost it. 
like, you know, everybody loses their offers these days. And we're kind of bummed because we were hoping to come here and be like getting ready for a new move. And, but our, our realtor said, Nicole, something weird is going on with this offer. So I think you should put in a backup offer. We're like, sure, whatever, put in a backup offer. So we load our family up an hour after that last unit sold. And we got halfway here and the phone rang and my realtor said, hi, Nicole, I hope you're sitting down. Guess what? <laughs> Another fairy. Another offer fell through the house is yours. And then immediately we lost reception and I was crying in the car and Tim was like, what, what's going on? It's like, you have to put your energy into the thing that needs to be done. And the minute it's done, another door opens up for you. It just works that way. Yeah. Well, and along the way you've done, you've done so many things. I mean, you started your own podcast, what's five, six years ago called run, run this world, right? You were episode five. We talked about penile dysfunction. I mean, I remember I was like, I love rip. I became plant strong. And you, and that's, that to me is that to me epitomizes your kind of your, your curiosity for life. Because I think you reached out to me because you wanted to try the 28 day challenge. Yeah. And, uh, and you like experimenting with things. And you, this is just another thing you wanted to try and experiment with to see what would happen with, I think your with your lipid panel and other things. Yes. And you, and I remember, yes. you, I remember you getting some really nice drop in your cholesterol and your LDL. And I think your triglycerides and stuff like that. And then, I mean, it sounds like for the most part, it's, it's stuck and you've been, you know, maybe not plant perfect, but you've certainly been plant strong. For yes. a long, long time. Yeah. It's funny. Um, you know, I, vegan is like one of those polarizing words. Plant strong is way less po- polarizing, but I, a friend of mine used the word cheegan not too long ago, the yeah. cheating vegan. Yeah. It's a lot of people like you eat cheese. I'm like, not really, but I cheat because I, I am not perfect. I am far from perfect. And, um, I mostly choose to yeah. eat the Rip Esselstyn way, because it feels the best. But if somebody's offering me something from a bakery and I'm sure it has butter and eggs, I usually don't say no. I take a bite. You know what I mean? So yeah, I I like being a Cheegan. I think it's cool. (laughs) That's I think Serena and Venus Williams consider themselves Cheegans. Awesome. See, it's coming all the way full cycle. Yeah, you're you're in good company for sure. And then also, um, what, just a couple months ago, you did a summit, right? Yes. Beautiful, something like that. Yes. And you know, part of that is because a lot of times when people sell their businesses, they have very bad relationships with the people that buy them. And I have amazing, an amazing relationship with our new owner. She and I started a podcast. It's called She Runs It. We're refocusing it a little bit on women in business. Um, we are doing projects together and the beautiful summit was one of those projects. So my role there was to line up all the speakers, get the content loaded and, uh, create inspiration for women. And it's like such a perfect fit for me. I love playing in a lot of buckets right now. Well, that and, and, and everything that it sounds like you've ever really done and been passionate about, it's also been about empowering women. It has, it is, you know, and 
I think it's really cool when you finally just embrace it. You go, well, this is what I'm going to do. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to empower. And women is big part of my focus. My new business isn't like just for women by any means, but like, um, but that is, that is, that will always be there. Yeah. Yeah. And you'll always be fashionable. I mean, I look at just talking to you right now and you've got a pink microphone cover uh, (laughs) that you're talking into that goes so perfectly with your pink hairband. Oh, thank you so much, Rip. Uh, uh, (laughs) (laughs) I will say, you know, it's fun. I love starting things. My new business called Aesop, it's actually at aesopnation.com and you can listen to your sample, which is what I call like a life lessons example. Um, I think your follow your passion was your big message. And that's, what's taken you through each stage. And maybe thinking back on our conversation today, maybe I'll steal that and say that following my passion has also taken me each stage. I think it absolutely has. Yeah. it has. You know, I I just want to share a little bit with, with the audience. So you also like one of the projects that you're doing right now is a mutual friend of ours named Steve Tarpinian, uh, tragic for us um, and everybody that loves Steve, he committed suicide about six years ago. And so you are now kind of interviewing a, a bunch of people on mental health and suicide and people that knew Steve. And it's something that's been kind of commissioned by Steve's partner, Gene. And what a beautiful thing to leave behind for people that, because I think today, so many people right now are, are hurting. They have mental health issues, suicidal thoughts. And to me, that's just like one of so many amazing things that you're going to create and put out there into the universe. I, it's, I, I, it's truly a gift. You know, I launched this business and the idea was for people to book interviews with me so that I could help them preserve their memories. But when I launched it, it went all kinds of directions. And I got a request from Jean and she said, Nicole, I saw your email. This new business has to do something with podcasting and interviews. Steve's hand was guiding me to reach out to you. I think we need to do some kind of tribute type podcast that helps raise awareness about this issue and also, you know, celebrate Steve in a way because that's important to her to focus on the positive impact he had on people's lives instead of having people judge the fact that he ended up killing himself to relieve his suffering, you know? And so it has, I said, yes, immediately. I was like, okay, I don't care if I lose money on it. Like this is important. We've got to, I've got to move where the energy is. And that project has been, Absolutely incredible. It it will be out in the new year. It's going to be called Touched by Suicide. And it will include 10, maybe more episodes. And most of them are from the perspectives of people who've been touched by suicide. We have a mom, we have an attempter who survived. We have a psychiatrist, a son, a fan. We have a colleague. That's you, Rip. I interviewed you for this. We have a buddy. We have an athlete. We have a widow. 
you know, this it it is, it's an important issue to raise awareness on. And the goal is that when people are suffering, just like you said, they feel very alone, whether they are thinking of killing themselves or if they're a survivor and uh, we want to provide a resource so people don't feel so alone. Mm -hmm. And as we talked about it, it, this is a subject that people don't talk about. And so like anything to me in life, if you can, if you can get conversations flowing and get people talking about it, it is so helpful in so many, in so many ways that we're not even aware of. You know, we think vegan's a polarizing word. Try suicide. You know, so many survivors, their first reaction is to withhold how their loved one died because they're ashamed. And that is a massive burden to carry, but it also perpetuates the stigma. And especially people who attempt, they don't, they don't share that they attempted. And Oftentimes that leads to the second attempt being successful, but if they had shared it, they may have found that there are other people out there who could help them. Yeah. Well, in addition to the word suicide, you know, that goes so hand in hand with it obviously is depression. And that's to me, another word that I think a lot of us suffer from depression and most of us aren't talking about it. Yeah. Well, here's the thing about depression. It is probably the number one mental health issue that leads to suicide, but also it's invisible. Mm -hmm. You know, alcoholism, you could see when I'm blackout drunk that I'm slurring my words and falling around. Um, You can see different diseases that people have often. You can physically see them or hear them. You can't see depression. And so one of the only ways to combat this is to have uh, persistent, consistent conversations with anybody, you know, the people in your life for sure, especially your kids as they're growing up and and getting into high school and environments where depression can start to come on, but to have conversations, even though you, you think for sure, they're not depressed, still ask the questions. You would never know if you don't ask. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And again, I want to thank you for, um, including me in that because it was, uh, it was really nice for me to actually, you know, just revisit those memories with Steve. And in fact, I've got the photo of me with Steve on on a beach right here behind me. Let me just get it for a sec. Oh my gosh. Oh, this is going to be good. Oh, Rip, this is amazing. Oh, Oh my God, that brings tears to my eyes. Uh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Those are happy times. <laughs> they are. Speaking of happy, you have a happy wall in your office, don't you? <laughs> I, do. I do. I have a wall of happy. If I turn my, uh, my laptop around, though, all my mics and stuff will come flying out. I stare at it. No one else needs to see it, just me. You can look at the picture behind me. It's cool, too. But yeah, I think everyone should create a wall of happy at a place where they, they look most. Mm -hmm. Mine includes artwork from my kid from like second grade that I framed and photos of smiles and, you know, anything that brings a little bit of joy, my wedding picture, (laughs) you know, sporting stuff. It's all fun. Yeah. Yeah. I want to talk about a couple other things and and then, uh, and then I'm going to 
going to let you go. Um, but one of them is, um, so I, in looking at some of your Instagram posts, I really like your Instagram and what you're, you know, what you post and how inspiring it is, but you have something that says it's a, it's a quote from Alice Walker. Activism is the rent that I pay for living on the planet. I, I feel like you are paying your rent and then some um, with everything that you're doing. Anyway, I don't know if you want to comment on that or not, but I just want to you know put it out there that I like that quote a lot. What's really cool is um, I picked that up from somebody I interviewed and I can't even remember who. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's the great thing about having a podcast. You get yeah. so many. Does it even matter? It doesn't matter because the whole point is that if we're not out here doing something a little larger than ourselves, it can lead, it can lead down some dark paths. So when you ever go that direction, broaden it, broaden your horizons, you know, that's what I think. Mm-hmm. Do something bigger than you. Yeah. It helps. Yeah, a- Absolutely. So I also want to talk to you now, because I know that you've been having some, some back issues. You've, you've got a kind of a, I don't know if it's a disease or what it is exactly, but it sounds kind of like spondylosiasis, something like that. Uh-huh. But, but It's like but, the longest. Yeah. But I want to tie that into body image, injuries, not being able to be as fit, you know, as maybe you or I would like to be because we have an injury and how all that kind of ties together. Yeah, it's um it's demoralizing. However, there has to be a phase I think of acceptance and then hopefully fixing <laughs> and a new normal. Um but what I do have was diagnosed a couple of years ago it's called spondylolisthesis. There's another <laughs> s like in the middle. I never pronounce I always just call it spondy. Yeah, who came up um, with that crazy name? Okay. And there's like there's spondylosis and spondylolysis. There's like all these ones, but this one is where one of your vertebrae has a genetic weakness, often genetic, but it doesn't have to be. You can get it from a traumatic injury. Um, and the vertebrae breaks. So you know you have your your sections of vertebrae. Mine's in my lumbar area. My L four broke, and it moved and slipped forward and it's sitting on top of L5. And you can go to my Instagram and look at my x-ray because I post these things. Oh, I did. Oh, it is crazy. It's terrifying to yeah. look at. You're yeah. like, whoa, those look really nice up there. And then your eyes go down and you're like, wow, there's no disc and there's a bone sitting on a bone and that looks bad. And, you know, I knew I had it, but um, you can live with this. Some people don't even know they ever have it, but over the last two and a half years, my symptoms have been getting worse. And I think possibly it's not stable anymore. I'm getting diagnosed right now with uh, the current state, but what ends up happening is your, your spinal cord gets pinched. And I now have numbness in my foot and my leg and pins and needles. And I'm thinking this is the beginning of the end because I know the end of the line for this condition, when the symptoms get bad enough is a spinal fusion. Mm. Isn't that terrifying sounding at 49 years old? I'm have a spinal fusion. Not if it will stop the pain and you'll be, you'll be better off. Well, and that's just it. You know, we're athletes. We know how to suffer. We know what pain feels like out on the Ironman, you know, battlefield constant lower grade pain 
it's hard to justify as being bad enough to need help. You know what I mean? From an athlete, from a high performer, but I do. And I can tell that the other day, Tim said, you know, Wilder's even noticed that your mood has changed. And I was like, maybe I am getting depressed. I've never really been depressed. Like it's not my baseline, but when your lifestyle starts to get more and more limited, that's when I think we go to the dark side and, uh, my lifestyle is getting limited, literally rip from swimming 10,000 yards a day. I can swim 500 yards before my back hurts. Like my workout yesterday was walking to the pool, swimming 500 and walking home. And to a lot of people listening, I would say that is a freaking awesome and respectable workout. But for me, that would be kind of my like secondary recovery thing. And in addition, I'd like to do an hour and a half on skate skis or something. But right now, I don't think my body's going to let me do that. Um, so, so it's hard. It's a mental thing. You know, yeah. the joy of sports is so ingrained in me and the endorphins that are released that I need. Yeah. I can't, I, I don't know how I will be if I let this go on much longer without fixing it. But I'm going to say one other thing about all this posting. I'm yeah. an open book out there. And a friend of mine wrote me in text the other day and she said, Nicole, I'm here for you. You are strong. It's scary, but it's great. And I love that you're out, you're crowdsourcing support. Mm. Mm. And I said, that's what I'm doing. I'm crowdsourcing support. People have all kinds of feelings about social media, but when you need support, people are generally there for you. And even if you don't know them, it feels good. Mm -hmm. So when you, and you are, you are an open book and just listening to your conversation here for the last, you know, hour and a half, you're (laughs) insanely open with everything from alcohol, blackouts, the rough, rough patch with, with, with Tim, your businesses. Have you always been that way? I mean, I think there's been an element of that that I've always had, but as I've gained more confidence in who I am, and I just don't care as much what people will think. And if I think that anything I can share would help someone else, I'm just willing to do it. Tell me, what did you have? Uh, what did you have to eat this morning for breakfast? Well, you know, there's a there is a kind of foundation piece from the seven day challenge that you did years ago when you were launching like the new abbreviated 28 day, you were like, let's do a seven day rescue. Right. That's right. And you launched this and the Facebook group had like 5 million people on day one. I was like, Oh my God, this thing's amazing. Everyone was crazy. And one of the things was you have to eat greens in every meal. And I love it. I, greens called to me and yet I don't always include them, but I know my body's craving them. So I do a breakfast, but then I do a second breakfast every day because I'm not full after the first breakfast. Um, But today my second breakfast was hot cereal with blueberries, almonds, some uh, honey almond milk. And then I threw a massive heaping pile of chopped up spinach and kale Mm. into it, stirred it up and ate that hot cereal with a fork. Was it it like oatmeal or steel cut oats or what was it? Yeah, I did oats and malto meal. Oh yeah. Yeah, I love malto meal. It's not gluten-free or anything. I don't, I'm not gluten-free, but, um, 
I love it. Neither are we. I mean, I know, I know. (laughs) But a lot of people think that people who are plant strong and, and eat, you know, with your philosophy are also gluten-free. They like make that assumption. No, we're, we, we're very much wheat proud. (laughs) (laughs) Well, good. You would have liked it. Actually, I throw that I made extra because I will throw that multi-meal oatmeal cooked into a green smoothie later today. Yeah. It, it gives it a good texture. Well, you know what I think I'm going to have later today? Tell me. Is, so we're having some friends over tonight and we're doing the Daboom Cherry Chili. <laughs> so for people that don't know, the, the Dabooms actually um, have this amazing chili they do with cherries in it. Who would have thought? And so I asked them if I could put it in the engine to cookbook and they said, absolutely. So, um, it is probably displayed there on page 253, <laughs> something like that. I love it. We make it all the time, our own recipe <laughs> and we've done some variations. We, they didn't have dried cherries. So we used cranberries recently. That was very good Threw some different veggies in squash, you know, all kinds of stuff. You can play. I love playing in the kitchen. Nicole, so great to visit with you today. And can you let people know one more time if they're interested in partaking in kind of sharing um, and preserving any of the stories in their lives, where can they go? Head to aesopnation.com and it's A-E-S-O-P nation.com. And you can find it on Instagram. I'm just getting that account off the ground at aesopnation. You can always Google me, search me, whatever, you'll find it too. And you reach out to me directly because I respond. Sometimes it takes a while. If I end up with back surgery, I'll let everyone know it might take a little longer, but um, it's an awesome business. And I'm really excited. The people who have uh, booked interviews, we've all had such a blast and it ends up being such a gift beyond the actual podcast that they receive their personal podcast. It, it's almost like a mix of like therapy and storytelling and, and just fun mm-hmm. every single well, time. And, and to me, you do such a fabulous job asking the right questions, making it so easy for the person that's sharing. And you're so just by nature, you're interested in pulling out all this, inf- pulling out all this information. Again, it goes back to one of the reasons I love you so much because of your, your, your deep rooted curiosity and your, un- your insatiable thirst for just like getting to know people and just wanting to always explore. And it's just a great spirit that, that emanates from you. You know, Rip, I but think you, that if, yeah. if at any point, if you don't know what you're doing or what you should be doing. If you write down the things that you really want. And for me, one of them was connection, especially during a time of a pandemic, I would love nothing more than to do like 10 interviews a day, connecting with people in all walks of life, hearing their stories and helping them feel like they're doing something really cool that would make me so happy. So book an interview to make me happy. (laughs) Yeah, there you go. I like it. Um, Nicole, you are deliciously optimistic. (laughs) Truly, truly. Uh, Man, way to go on your next chapter in life. Thank you for sharing all those chapters. What a, you, you know, in looking back, 
from when you, you know, were in the deep end of that pool kicking butt to where you are today. Can you believe all the different like experiences you've had and no. what an amazing life, you know, no, and, and, and it's you not know, even halfway, get, halfway done, <laughs> halfway done. And as we get older, you know, we just learn that the next one is going to turn into something else one day too. Mm-hmm. So that's what I'm excited about is just that it's a journey the whole way. Well, I can't wait to come visit you and Tim in Steamboat. Do you have a guest room I can stay in? Yeah. And right now I'm sleeping in it because of my freaking back, okay. but it'll be better when you come visit and you can have it. It's like a suite. It's amazing. And then we'll cook you some Daboom cherry chili. You can have like three or four bowls. It's yeah. going to be an awesome visit. I love it. I love it. All right. I look forward to seeing you soon. Peace engine two. Keep it plant strong. Daboom. <laughs> Thank you, Nicole DeBoom, for your friendship and inspiration to start this year on a positive note. I love that she has a wall of happy in her office, and I would encourage all of us to do the same thing. Stay the course, and like Nicole, continue to remain deliciously optimistic. Oh, and one final note. Nicole did have her back surgery a few weeks ago and is doing fantastic. We're rooting for you, Nicole DaBoom. For all the resources and links from today's show, including all of Nicole's projects, visit the episode page at plantstrongpodcast.com. The Plant Strong Podcast team includes Carrie Barrett, Lori Kordowich, Amy Mackey, Patrick Gavin, and Wade Clark. This season is dedicated to all of those courageous truth seekers who weren't afraid to look through the lens with clear vision and hold firm to a higher truth. Most notably, my parents, Dr. Caldwell B. Esselstyn Jr. and Anne Cryle Esselstyn. Thanks for listening. <laughs>